Good afternoon and welcome to Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, January 26th, 2020. I'm Kyle Kellums. You can always listen to past editions of our show by accessing the Ozarks at Large feature on our free KUAF app. Ahead on today's show, women of color offering help to women of color and others. And then from there, we have been working with different community organizations locally to just help us promote events um, and just like process, like what is the, what do we need to start and like keep going? A conversation with the founders of Black Resilient Women about their efforts to help women of color have better access to mental health care and offering a grief workshop Sunday night virtually. We'll learn more just ahead. Arkansas's new cases of COVID-19 yesterday represents a slight increase compared to Tuesday last week. Just fewer than 8,000 new cases reported yesterday. However, Governor Asa Hutchinson said he's not disillusioned by that comparison since last Tuesday's numbers reflected a low number of tests administered on the King holiday. Hospitalizations decreased by a net of 32 patients, though the total number of COVID-19 patients in Arkansas hospitals still more than 1,700 people. Dr. Jose Romero, Arkansas's Secretary of Health, says the slight decrease is good news, but by no means indicates the end of a surge. One of the big questions that we're left with within the health department is where the set point is going to be. And after each surge, we have seen the set points of cases um, increase so that the background in the number of cases continues. Um, and and uh, my feeling is that given the transmissibility of this virus, that we're going to see an increase in that set point, that we're going to see a daily number that's going to persist. And that daily number will affect the number of hospitalizations we have, as well as the number of deaths. As you've seen, our deaths are not going down. They plateaued, really. Active cases in Arkansas dropped by more than 3,700 people in the last 24 hours. The Arkansas Department of Health reports 24 newly confirmed deaths from the virus in the most recent 24-hour period. Northwest Arkansas hospitals report a net increase of two COVID-19 patients since this time yesterday, meaning there are 185 virus patients in hospitals in Benton and Washington counties, setting another all-time high for the region. A new study led by the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences suggests the virus that causes COVID-19 may have a limited potential for new mutations. The multinational study led by UAMS researcher David Usry looked at millions of genomic sequences of the virus. Usry says the genetic RNA code of the virus points to its ability to mutate. In TV shows, uh, if someone commits a crime and you have the DNA, you can figure out who did it, right? So the DNA is kind of the best unique identifier. For people, it's also true with viruses. If you have the genomic sequence, which is the entire, in the case of COVID, it's an RNA sequence, but you have the entire sequence. It's 30,000 characters. It's not that long. So, so then you can know what's causing the problem. Vaccines against COVID-19 target the way antibodies attach to proteins on the surface of the virus, which Usri says provides good protection against numerous variants of the coronavirus. The study was published in the journal FEMS Microbiology Reviews. A new collaboration between the Arkansas State Police, the Arkansas Department of Transportation, and several cell providers is designed to make it easier for motorists to report matters to authorities. The state agencies are teaming with AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile for the creation of a non-emergency contact number, Star 277, that connects people to the Arkansas State Police's Highway Patrol Division. Colonel Bill Bryan of the Arkansas State Police says the new number can be of assistance in many ways. 277 will allow cell phone user carriers to contact the nearest Arkansas State Police headquarters. We have 12 headquarters around the state, and working with our cellular carriers, it will automatically put you to the nearest troop headquarters around our state. As the government mentioned, just, you know, this is not a substitute for 911. If you see a real emergency, you dial 911. The new system was made possible by legislation sponsored by Representative Stephen Meeks, a Republican from Faulkner County. The Arkansas Razorback softball team is earning another high preseason ranking. The ESPN USA softball poll puts Arkansas at number nine. Earlier this week, Arkansas was ranked 10th in the Softball America preseason poll. Season will open February 10th in Puerto Vallarta, the home opener scheduled for February 17th against Wichita State. And there is a small chance of light snow tonight in northwest Arkansas and northeast Oklahoma. The National Weather Service offers a 30% chance between 9 tonight and 3 tomorrow morning. The rest of this afternoon, sunny, with highs in the lower 40s across the region.
This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday. Later this month, we should start seeing those at-home COVID-19 test kits being delivered by the United States Postal Service. In addition to that, private insurance companies are now required to reimburse their members for the purchase of at-home tests they may buy at retail stores. What are the rules and regulations around the test from the insurance companies? I'm joined now by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore for the details. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Kyle. All right, give us some insight. What can you tell us about insurance companies and these at-home tests? Right. So the Biden administration laid out that each individual will be able to be reimbursed for up to eight tests per month. Now, the tests from the federal government, the ones we get at covidtests.gov, that's just four for an entire household. And as of right now, it seems to be a one-time thing. The insurance companies, on the other hand, will cover eight tests per month per person. I spoke with Max Greenwood from Arkansas Blue Cross Blue Shield, and here's what she says. So, you know, for a family of four, that would make them eligible for a total of 32 tests each each month. Is there an age restriction when we talk about, uh, you know, if we're talking about a child, say a six-month-old child, are they still able to get those tests? It is my understanding there is no age restriction. The only restriction I'm aware of is that those individuals that have Medicare Advantage policies are not included in this federal program. Okay, so a family of four can get 32 tests per month. Are there any restrictions on where you can get these tests? Well, not exactly, but some insurance providers have preferred pharmacies or retailers. I reached out to United Healthcare, and they shared that they do, in fact, have a few, including Walmart Pharmacy and Sam's Club Pharmacy, and they're looking to add more, they've said. If you purchase them at an in-store pharmacy counter and show your healthcare and pharmacy insurance card, you should be able to receive them at no out-of-pocket expense to you. Now, again, this is according to their website. We were not able to get anyone from United Healthcare to talk to us on the record at this time. And according to Greenwood from Arkansas Blue Cross Blue Shield, they do not currently have those relationships with any pharmacies. Right now, if you walked into Walgreens or another pharmacy and showed your insurance card, they may not be set up to process it the way that we envision it being processed. When this is fully implemented, you will go in like you do for any prescription or any flu shot or anything else that's covered under your um, coverage policy. You show your card, you will get your test, and you will have no out-of-pocket costs. So what we are doing until everything is put into place is you go in, um, you purchase your tests, you hold on to your receipt, and then you go on to our website, and that will literally walk you through how to submit your receipt, submit your claim so that you can get reimbursed. Now, I think you and I both know that there's no such thing as a simple process when it comes to submitting something to insurance. But considering the typical red tape and HIPAA concerns surrounding most insurance-related claims, this doesn't seem to be overly cumbersome. All right, so when it comes to reimbursing the cost of these tests, I wonder, is there a price limit? Like, an insurance company isn't going to cover a test if you paid $50 for it, are they? No, that doesn't seem to be the case with most of them. United Healthcare has said they will cover up to $12 for a test. When I asked Max about this, she says Arkansas Blue Cross Blue Shield does not have a max cost, but that these limits are in place for a good reason. And part of that, I think, is so you don't have, let's just say, bad actors flooding the marketplace with just astronomically priced tests. I mean, you know, no one wants to see a program that is meant to focus on diagnosing COVID-19, making it easier for folks to be careful, to be aware of their condition. No one wants to see that become, you know, a, a program of fraud and abuse by bad actors. All right. We are into the 23rd month of this pandemic. Do any of the folks on the insurance side worry that getting all of these tests out to people 
during the pandemic is now just a little too late? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I asked Max if she thought there had been too much emphasis put on getting people vaccinated up front instead of emphasizing testing first. And she essentially says hindsight is twenty twenty. I think to try to second guess, I think what we need to do is, is learn um, as, as we move forward. And sure, you know, um, should we, could we, you know, should have we done... I'm sure we could all assess things differently now that we're three years out, but I really don't think that that is going to be helpful. I think what we need to do is, I know the governor's talking about all the tests that are out there, but, but from a, I can give you a personal anecdote. I've tried all week to pick up those tests and every place I go to, they're, they're gone and they're gone quickly. So, you know, I mean, I had one of our local libraries the other day tell me they were getting tests in at 4. By 4.30, they were out of them. So there is clearly a demand, which is, which is great. It is so good to see folks taking advantage of the great job that the governor and his team did in making sure that our state received. And the health department has been phenomenal. You know, they have been working behind the scenes to make sure that all of these things are coming to our state for people to have access to. If you had an opportunity to be the vaccine czar of the state of Arkansas, Uh what do you think? I would say no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I would say no, thank you. What can we we do to get more Arkansans vaccinated? What can we do that we haven't already done? I don't know. Um, I think, you know, you, you have community leaders talking to people in their community. You have religious leaders talking to their congregations. You have doctors talking to their patients. You have, I mean, you know, I, I don't see what we're not doing. I think part of the problem is that the amount of misinformation and disinformation was so, just so much, whether it was through social media or, or other avenues, that that was the message that people heard. And unfortunately, what is a very serious medical catastrophe that we're in, you know, that should be driven by science and should be driven by the medical experts, somehow, for all the wrong reasons, got wrapped up in politics. And I don't know how you unring that bell. I I think the best we can hope for is that, you know, the scientific and the medical voices at some point become louder or at least more listened to than the the other voices that are out there. That was Max Greenwood from Blue Cross Blue Shield. Matthew Moore, a reporter and a producer for Ozarks at Large. Matthew, thank you so much. Thanks, Kyle. This is Ozarks at Large. Resilient Black Women, a new nonprofit organization in Northwest Arkansas, is designed to provide education and conversation about mental health and culture. Founded by licensed counselors Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson, Resilient Black Women will host a virtual event Sunday night about grief. We invited Denisha and Joy to our studio this week to learn more about Sunday's program and more about Resilient Black Women. Denisha says the formation of the nonprofit stems from a shared passion. And that passion just came from growing up in Northwest Arkansas as um, a black female. We did not have a lot of resources for us. Um, And so that passion came from I wanted a space for minority women to come and feel safe. Um, And that's basically where that passion came from. And so then I talked with Joy and we took off. Well, I like that you just say we took off because this is so it it couldn't have been just that easy. You couldn't have just this I mean what what had to happen to make this happen? 
Yeah, I think so. First, we recently received, I received a grant from the Witness Collective, which is a um, Christian-led Black organization that seeks to fund Black-led nonprofits um, all around the U.S. And so I received a $50,000 grant through that organization to help fund us. And so with that money, we have been using it to secure our nonprofit um, status. And we've been working with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. They have like a free legal team. Um, So we still have to pay all the fees, but they do all the work. (laughs) Um, And that's really good. Um, And then from there, we have been working with different community organizations locally to just help us promote events um, and just like process, like what is the, what do we need to start and like keep going? Um, So this is like our first year really Mm -hmm. um, promoting the events since we received that scholarship money in July of last summer. Mm. Now, I know that uh, for women of color who are black, Latinx, Asian, their resources are less. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you can correct me if I'm incorrect, the, the, um, the instances of stress or mental challenges are higher as well through culture and society. That's a double-edged sword that makes... Yeah. It a challenge. Yeah, right. that's part of the reason why um, we love that. I love the idea that Denisha came up with the name Resilient Black Women um, because one, it gives us an opportunity to show black women as more than just we are strong or the angry black woman, right? All these stereotypes that come up with being a black woman um, in our society. Um, that we are resilient. We are America's forever first lady. We are the highest two paid athletes in the world. Um and then we are also like Simone Bowles, <laughs> like really need to like stop and take rest and take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to like give this new name for black women. And then on top of that, I think what you just said, like the research confirms that black women and women of color are struggling the most with mental health. What we know is that black women suffer the longest with issues like depression. Um and then they go untreated, undiagnosed, and they don't go seek help. Most of the time, what you see is that a lot of black women might not even recognize that some of the symptoms that they're having are related to depression. Mm. <laughs> they just keep going. Again, we get this stereotype that we don't like as <laughs> being called strong, um, carrying everything and everyone's problems, um, and just keep moving. And so I think the research itself tells us like we have to focus on women of color, and we have to give them access and accessibility um, and affordability to mental health, um, and to be able to process that with culture. I think that's a unique thing of what mm-hmm. we're trying to do is processing how mental health and culture um, are important together, which is, um, which I think sometimes we have that conversation and we make them like separate. Um, and I think that with, with our organization, we're just trying to have the conversation together. Um, how does culture impact my ability to, to seek support, um, to even recognize that I need it, um, and to recognize, like, what are those warning signs? There's, there's also, you know, the, the stigma that everyone, well, that seem, is seemingly universal that, oh, to ask for help is to show a sign of weakness. Right. And you've got to battle that as well. Right. And I would like to validate there's been reasons, um, plenty of reasons for minority women, specifically black women, to not feel weak. Right. Um, and that just goes back even the slavery days, right? And so that's part of what resilient black women is. It's okay to be, I wouldn't say weak, but vulnerable. Um, it's okay not to be able to handle it all or bear the burden or need help. Um, but that doesn't mean you're weak. That means you're resilient. Mm-hmm. Well, and seeking help is not weakness at all. Absolutely. It takes a lot more strength, right? Yes. It's actually the opposite. And then the value in being able to talk to someone about your challenges, about your worries, about your concerns, someone who perhaps may not have all the same life experiences, but does understand through what you've, you know, how you look, how, you know, your culture, that sort of ear is valuable. Absolutely. And that's another thing that um, one of our goals is to provide resources for other um, minority therapists, because that seemingly has not it's not huge in this area, but there are some. And so I believe Joy has started compiling a list of other minority therapists um, for people to feel like they can go in therapy and feel comfortable. And someone already knows a piece of their struggle. 
Now, what is happening on the 30th? Mm-hmm. On the 30th, we are hosting an event about grief. It's a conversation about grief where we will process um, grief, culture, and art. Um, so we have three different guests, community guests, who will be speaking on a panel. And then we also have two um, performers who will be doing some spoken word at the beginning and at the end. Um, our goal is to make sure that this event feels like an experience of being able to process like what grief is, how it shows up in your body and how to help you heal. And so that is the reason why we're trying to have like these bookends of like the poetry at the beginning. And then in the middle, we have uh, Lakeisha Bradley, who owns Mighty by Design, who will be leading us through this mindfulness exercise with art. Um, So our goal is that we really didn't want it to be like another, uh, just like a panel discussion of people like talking at you, but like we are talking with you. Um, And we had planned to do this in person, but with all the things that are happening... (laughs) It's much safer to do it online. Um, So we hope that our audience gets to really experience um, some of the things, some of the tools that we hope to give them on Sunday. How do do people participate? Yeah, so there is a link. So if you um, follow us on Instagram, resilientblackwomen underscore O-R-G, there is a link in our bio where you can simply click and then you can register. Um, It is a Zoom webinar, so you'll be a participant um, and we'll be able to send you an email before, like an hour before and the day of of the event. I know that in-person is the preferred, but I wonder if there's just a sort of unexpected advantage that some people who might be a little hesitant or want to be just a little bit more anonymous might join this. Because absolutely. of this. Yeah, absolutely. I feel there is that advantage because there will be people that feel anxious or even like, um, do I want to show my grief? Do I want to experience this in front of others? And so being able to do that in the comfort of their own home will be a definite advantage. And we're hoping to also that by doing these online webinars and trainings that when we do start going in person, they've learned to, these people have... Um, been given like the resources and yes. like feel empowered to to yes. join our live events uh-huh. um, because our events will be geared toward just like more hot topics for like culture and mental mm-hmm. health as this relates to um, minoritized communities in our in our little area. So um, we hope that it does make people feel really empowered mm-hmm. to to show up in their full self um, that they don't need to be uh, afraid and that they can feel safe. I think really that's what we want to feel resilient safe. black women to be right mm-hmm. to be a, a safe place for everyone. And so so this event is for everyone. You don't have to identify with the black, Latin eggs, Asian right. American uh, culture to be there. I think as you said earlier, right, like some of these things are just universal. We all experience grief. Mm-hmm. We just want to have the both and conversation about how culture impacts that. Sometimes I, I Joy, you you touched on this. We may not know that depression is connected to some of the things we're feeling. I imagine grief is the same way. We can sometimes have these, what we think are these pinpoint reasons for grief, but grief does not just have to be perhaps the death of a loved one or something like that, right? You can feel grief from other things? Our body can grieve um, the transition from a job that we didn't even like. But it's something that we knew and we were used to and we knew what to expect. And so our body can grieve the loss of something as simple as that. I imagine the last 23 months have given all of us opportunity for grief. Right. Like everything has changed because of COVID, right? There's so many things that people have missed out on. There's so many things that people have had to reschedule and all of that is grief. And that's exactly what we hope people walk away with. Like, it's not just that you lost a loved one. You lost like time. (laughs) Like You can't Uh go back. I was just thinking about that this morning. You know, I haven't been to, to a friend's party in two years and the things like that. And that seems minor at first, but you do think about there are only so many years we have. Right. And if we've lost two years of graduations mm-hmm. or things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you grew up here in yes. Northwest Arkansas. Do you think that gives you an advantage perhaps to talking to other BIPOC women who may grow up here? Because there are a lot of us who grew up in Northwest Arkansas who don't know all of Northwest Arkansas. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does just from seeing the growth um, and the challenges, but also the benefits. And so just being able to have that history and roots in Northwest Arkansas. Absolutely. I think it does. 
Denisha Simpson and Joy McGowan are co-founders of Resilient Black Women, a new nonprofit in Northwest Arkansas. Our visit took place in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio on Monday. More about their organization can be found at resilientblackwomen.org. Sunday's discussion about grief is virtual. It's scheduled to run from 7 until 8.15 p.m. We have a link for registration at ozarksatlarge.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Arcom Plus, offering printing, binding, graphic design, and more. Open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Orders can be submitted via email, telephone, or walk-in service is available. Printingnwa.com or 444-7711 for additional information. This is Ozarks at Large. World championships don't arrive often in Arkansas, but this weekend, there's a chance for you to literally see world-class athletes at the 2022 Walmart UCI Cyclocross World Championship. The event will be hosted at Centennial Park in Fayetteville starting Friday and lasting through Sunday. To offer us more details about cyclocross and the rundown for the competition, Brandon Pack, a cycling coordinator for Experience Fayetteville, and Hazel Hernandez, Experience Fayetteville's Vice President of Marketing and Communications, spoke with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Hazel, Brandon, thank you for joining us today and speaking with us here at Ozarks at Large. To start out, can you guys tell me more about cyclocross for listeners who perhaps are not as familiar? Absolutely. Rachel, again, thanks for having us. Cyclocross, what a wild sport Um, for cycling and non-cycling fans. Cyclocross is the most spectator-friendly form of all the cycling disciplines. So even if you're just kind of race curious with the upcoming 2022 Walmart UCI Cyclocross World Championships, we'd invite all to come out. It's a a fantastic time. If you don't know anything about the sport, it's very Olympic-like. So you can truly, it's, it's, uh, we'll have over 20 countries represented throughout the weekend racing for six world championships right here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So you, if you don't know what cyclocross is about, we invite you to come out to Centennial Park and check it out. And a great, I would add a great opportunity to come check out, check it out is Friday, which is a free community day. And people can register for those free tickets online. And for the first time in a cyclocross world championship, we'll be doing a team relay. So countries, yeah, so for the first, so this will give spectators an opportunity to see an actual cyclocross race if they've never seen one um, and kind of give them a little sneak peek of what's to come over the weekend. Great. And so how many events will there be exactly? And are tickets still available for all? I, I know there was a VIP and other sections. Yeah. So tickets are still available. Um, you can go to cyclocrossfatevilleAR2022.com and purchase your tickets. Um, we have six, seven, if you include the team relay race on Friday. Um, so it'll be seven events, one on Friday and three on um, on Saturday and three on Sunday. And, and uh, spectators can also visit the website and has a complete uh, schedule of events. And so I know you briefly mentioned that there were some other events that the public could be part of. Um, What else is happening around those days that the public can join? Maybe opening ceremonies, ensuing festivals, that sort of thing. Absolutely. We're going to, um, Rachel, we're going to kick things off Thursday with an opening ceremony on Fayetteville's historic downtown square. That's an outdoor open air event that's open to the public, free to attend, really a chance, very ceremonial, again, Olympic like. When do you get a chance to recognize 20 countries participating in a single sport right here in Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas? And we're going to kick things off for, uh, Thursday with that opening ceremony. We'll roll right into competition on Friday. That relay race Hazel talked about that kicks off at 1230 at the venue. We're going to pit country versus country. So it's Team USA versus the Belgians versus France. It'll really, you know, be an exciting um, opportunity to catch that action live on Friday. Again, it's free to attend a community day. And then from there, roll into back-to-back days of elite racing, starting from juniors all the way up to elite athletes, both men and women racing for six different world championships. Yeah. And we are also partnering uh, with Epic, formerly known as Bike NWA, for a Pass the Mic event on Friday afternoon, along with a group ride. And it's uh, uh, intersectionality in cycling. And so we have a great panel and people can visit the Epic website as well and register for the event. Uh, There'll be a group ride prior and then a panel afterwards. 
what do you guys believe is the best way to experience this event? Is there Are there optimal viewing locations for some of our listeners who perhaps have not been to a cyclocross championship? Well, I think the best part of cyclocross is that there's no bad viewing areas because as opposed to other cycling disciplines, you can get right up to the course and watch that race front and center. So I think that's what separate cyclocross from um, any other cycling discipline is just, again, it's such a spectator-friendly sport. Yeah, and Rachel, I'll go into that real quick. So for fans that are those that are curious about what cyclocross is, um, it's short track NASCAR for cycling fans is how we describe it. So it's a short course under two miles. And because of that, it's really spectator friendly. Just from a couple vantage points, you can take in an entire hour race. And then what's so exciting about cyclocross is once we've laid out this kind of short track, then we pack it with all these obstacles like sand and climbs and off-camber turns, all meant to challenge the athletes to force them to get off their bikes and run a lot of these obstacles. It's really fan-friendly, really engaging, held rain or shine, the chance of weather like mud only makes it more exciting. Well, this definitely sounds like a unique event. Um, and why did some of the event managers, if you guys could provide some insight, and the creators of this event choose FAVO and continue its selection of Northwest Arkansas? Is this perhaps a sign of the increased cycling tourism that we'll see in the city in the coming years? I think what we're seeing with, so we'll take Centennial Park at Millsat Mountain, which is the venue of, of the Cyclocross World Championships, is really an investment in both this community of Fayetteville, the, the city of Fayetteville actually funded the purchase of that property, and then philanthropic investment to build out the course. And so what we're seeing is this balanced investment from the communities across Northwest Arkansas and additional stakeholders to build event venues like Centennial Park that we're able to leverage in multiple ways. When we're not hosting what are some of the sport's most prestigious events, it's literally a public park for Fayetteville and the Northwest Arkansas community to enjoy. And I think that's what we're continuing to see, not just in Fayetteville, but across that region is that investment in quality in life, that investment in open air places like public parks, but at the same time, installing infrastructure that we can leverage in tourism to bring in what are some of the real, truly exciting events to the region. Yeah, and, and to add to that, I think um, I think the governing body, the UCI, um, I think they see that, right? They see that development in Fayetteville and in Northwest Arkansas. And I think having that history um, is really what helped us, uh, you know, Fayetteville became uh, the first bike city um, in the U.S. Uh, labeled by or awarded by the UCI. So I think all of our, our Fayetteville's community investment and the region's investment led up to being labeled a bike city. So I think it's just our history that really helped folks realize like, hey, we need to bring this event to Fayetteville. Wonderful. Well, Hazel Hernandez, Brandon Pack, thank you so much for joining us. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Brandon Pack and Hazel Hernandez from Experience Fayetteville via Zoom. Tickets and more information about volunteer opportunities for the 2022 UCI Cyclocross World Championship this weekend are available at cyclocrossfayetteville.ar2022.com. Even after the Omicron surge ends, COVID-19 will still be with us, and living with the virus will be especially hard for people who are medically vulnerable. There's an element of risk no matter where I go. I can't step out into public and not assume that there's somebody unvaccinated nearby. Learning to live with an endemic virus. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered today from 3 to 6 on KUAF. You can always listen to KUAF by downloading and using the free KUAF app. Yeah, this is Andy Winger. I'm calling from Bella Vista. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. I am Nora Cully, a seventh grader from Haas Hall Academy. Thank you for all that you do. This is Ray Dean Trees and Earring. I love you, KUAF. My name is Rebecca Cavanaugh, calling from Springdale, Arkansas. Thank you so much to Public Radio. Thanks. Bye. Hey, KUAF. It's Blytheimer from Fayetteville. Thanks for letting us call in. Bye. We continue our survey of the first 150 years of University of Arkansas history today with the story of something far older than the university, a fossil. Well, two fossils. Our guide again is Charlie Allison, the executive editor at University Relations 
at the U of A. Have you heard the story about the three students who discovered the world's largest fossil of an actinoid nautiloid? You have. Which one? Because there are two stories that happened 40 years apart. I'll start with the one fresher in our memory. Back in the fall of 2002, a freshman named Sarah Key started out her freshman year as an accounting major. But by the end of the semester, she was reconsidering. Her geology class had piqued her interest. Switching her major to geology at the beginning of the spring semester in 2003, Key and another geology student, a senior named Kevin Morgan, drove about a mile and a half from campus to a drainage ditch near the interchange of what is now Interstate 49 and Martin Luther King Boulevard. They planned to spend the morning looking for fossils in the ditch, the bottom of which runs across a strata of rock known as the Fayetteville Shale. And before I go further, you should probably know that the Fayetteville Shale was named by a university professor, Frederick William Simons. Simons earned his bachelor's and master's degrees at Cornell and then taught at the University of North Carolina while completing his doctoral degree. In 1887, he became a professor of biology and geology at the University of Arkansas. He also assisted in the geological survey of the state, starting with Washington County, during which time he plotted the surface geology on the maps of the county. One of the surface layers often seen across South Fayetteville was, and still is, a thick shale layer, and he named it after the town of Fayetteville in 1891. But back to our story. The two students, Key and Morgan, knew that dime-sized ammonoid fossils were abundant in the area that they wanted to search, but they had also heard rumors of a three-foot-long nautiloid fossil. Now, nautiloid fossils themselves are not nearly so common as ammonoids, but if you were to find one, a three- to four-foot-long nautiloid wouldn't be too unusual. But really, who knew what they would find? Key and Morgan began digging around in the ditch in separate spots. Key noticed a hardened calcite formation in the flaky shale. She called Morgan over and they began carefully removing shale from what looked like a good-sized fossil. This was definitely no rinky-dink ammonoid. Soon they called another geology student, Jonathan Gillip, and the three of them spent the rest of the day hammering, chiseling, scraping, and cleaning away the unessential minerals and shale, eventually establishing the outline of what looked like a huge, straight-shelled nautiloid. As its size grew, they called one more person, their geology advisor, Professor Walt Manger. Manger later told a science writer that he was a little skeptical, or at least until he saw the excavation for himself. He told the writer, quote, these students knew exactly what they had. It may have been luck that brought them to it, but knowledge took over from there. They recognized what they'd found and were very conscientious about the excavation. Manger's initial skepticism made sense. The fossil that the students described to Manger was twice the length of the usual nautiloid fossil. It turned out to be a whopping eight feet long. It proved to be the longest actinoceratoid nautiloid ever found in the world. It belongs to an extinct species called Rhinoceros solidiform, which thrived in the shallow seas that covered the present-day Ozarks during the Mississippian area, or about 325 million years ago, give or take a few million. <laughs> Rhinoceros solidiform was a cephalopod related to the modern-day squid. And like today's squids, these ancient creatures would have mated, laid eggs within about three to four years, and then died. So normally, they didn't have time to grow beyond three or four feet long. But that brings us to our second story. The previous record holder for size was a nautiloid fossil that was also found by three U of A geology students. But this one was found in 1963. Two of them, Doy Zachary and Benjamin Clardy, were graduate students, and the third, Bruce Saunders, was an undergraduate. Just like Key, Morgan, and Gillip, the earlier trio spent several hours uncovering a symmetrical mound that eventually revealed a nautiloid fossil more than seven feet long. Zachary finished his master's degree in 1964, and he wrote his thesis about the lithology of the Fayetteville Black Shale. One of the questions he was curious about was the position of the nautiloid fossils within the strata. You see, it turns out that most of the nautiloid fossils weren't lying flatly parallel to the other rock strata, but were angled through the strata. Zachary wondered why that would be, and he posited that, perhaps after death, decomposition causes gases to form within one end of the shell making it slightly more buoyant and lifting it. But then he wondered, how fast would silt need to fill in around the nautiloid to hold the corpus of the nautiloid at an angle? Most previous theories about the formation of shale hypothesized that it would take a slower period of time. And Zachary's idea ran counter to that. Accumulation of materials around the shell, while it was tilted up, would have to happen more quickly. Zachary went on to earn his doctoral degree at the University of Texas and eventually returned to the University of Arkansas as a geology professor and eventually chair of the department. 
When Manger joined the faculty and heard about the 1963 nautiloid, another question nagged at him. Why did that outsized specimen exist at all? What caused that nautiloid to grow so much larger than what was usually found? Nothing that big had been found before. Manger hypothesized that the giant may have been rendered sterile by parasitic trematoids and was thus unable to reproduce. And as a result, it didn't die after three or four years, but kept growing into, as Manger put it, a pathological giant. That single fossil from 1963 is not a lot to hang your theory on, but the discovery by Key, Morgan, and Gillip bolstered Manger's hypothesis. At the time of the find, Manger told a writer, quote, When you only have one example to go on, you wonder. But the students have given us another example that fits perfectly with this hypothesis. While the similarity of those two giant fossils found 40 years apart provides evidence about the reproductive patterns of these prehistoric creatures, their differences also offer instruction. In modern nautiloids, males and females show a difference in the diameter of their apertures, the open end of the shell where the organisms reside. The two fossil giants show similar signs of gender difference too. Even though the total length of the two fossils is within a foot of each other, the aperture of the 1963 fossil is wider than the 2003 fossil by nearly a third. Manger said at the time of the 2003 discovery, quote, We think we've just found a female. Determining the gender of prehistoric organisms is difficult because fossils are rarely found whole. But the specimen that Key, Morgan, and Gillip discovered is remarkably well-preserved, offering essential information about the creature's physical features and proportions. Today, that fossil of the pathologically gigantic nautiloid is part of the University of Arkansas Museum collection. Charlie Allison is the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas. And as the U of A observes its sesquicentennial, he's providing accounts of the people, events, and places of the school's first century and a half. You can find out more about the University of Arkansas sesquicentennial at 150.uark.edu. You can also find past audio essays from Charlie by looking through past shows at ozarksatlarge.com. Walton Arts Center presents Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom, a new musical that tells the true story of Linda Blackman Lowry, the youngest person to walk from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama during the Voting Rights March in 1965. This virtual-only screening runs February 3rd through the 16th. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. Butterfieldtrailvillage.org for more. If the talk of cyclocross earlier in the show has you eager to get outside, we have some ideas. The Spark Foundation, the force behind such community races as the Nutty Runner 5K, the Hero Half Marathon, and the Cow Patty Run, adding another race to its portfolio. The What's Your Spark 5K is going to be in Springdale. It's a family-focused 5K and 1K scheduled for March 5th. There are also school participation prizes for the top three Springdale elementary and middle schools, that will have the most participants in the race. Cash prizes of $1,500 and $250 will be donated to support the school's health and fitness education programs. You can find out more about the Spark Foundation and all the races at mysparkfoundation.org. And there's also a 125-mile challenge at the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park. The best news about this, you have until December 7th to complete that challenge. In honor of the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Prairie Grove, that anniversary will be December 7th. The park is offering a nearly year-long opportunity to walk 125 miles on park trails. There is a check-in at the Museum and Visitor Center for guests so you can track your mileage throughout the year. Those who complete the 150-mile challenge will receive a walking stick. The 125 miles chosen as the distance because federal troops march 125 miles to Prairie Grove in advance of the battle. I'm Anthony Brooks. Finding daycare for your kids was never easy. The pandemic has made it harder. And the Omicron surge is bringing new challenges to a profession struggling with staffing shortages. Just one positive case can shut down a child care center and leave parents in the lurch. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now begins at 1 o'clock this afternoon. You can listen to any program on KUAF by just asking your smart speaker to please play. KUAF.
The 20th Annual Tobacco Report Card from the American Lung Association is out today, measuring efforts by each state and the federal government to reduce tobacco use. Arkansas receives one C grade, that for strength of smoke-free workplace laws, one D for access to cessation programs for residents, and three Fs for funding for state tobacco prevention programs, for the level of tobacco taxes, and work to end the sale of all flavored tobacco products. Laura Turner, the Senior Manager of Advocacy for the American Lung Association in Arkansas Missouri, says the annual report is a way of determining how states are doing to combat tobacco use, which the American Lung Association identifies as the country's leading cause of preventable death. She says Arkansas is doing a better job than many states when it comes to prohibiting smoking in public places. It's prohibited at a majority of workplaces. Um, and then where it, it could improve um, is in restaurants and bars, it's restricted but not prohibited. Um, and then we also have some room to grow with e-cigarette policy and including those in the coverage. Um, and then we have preemption in Arkansas, which means that um, stronger local laws aren't able to be enforced and created um, anything stronger than the state level. So that's something that we really uh, want to work on because there's specific local needs and um, it's good to have a stronger tobacco policy. So we need to let local communities make those decisions for themselves. There's one D out of the five categories. That's coverage and access to services to quit tobacco. So I'm uh, that refers to cessation uh, classes and the ability to have those paid by by perhaps insurance or other means? Yes, and also um, all of the seven FDA-recommended medications are covered. So that's a positive thing. Um, and there are no barriers that exist to access coverage for the state Medicaid program, also a great thing. And Arkansas has Medicaid expansion. So those are all areas that go into it being a D rather than an F. Well, you brought up the letter F, so let's talk about the other three categories where <laughs> the report does give Arkansas failing grades. That's funding for state tobacco prevention programs. That's level of state tobacco taxes and ending the sale of all flavored tobacco products. Let me start with that last one first. I'm, I'm, I'm not a smoker, so I'm, I'm assuming this talks about this would be vaping, e-cigarettes, and flavored tobacco products. Um, how many of those are out there and, and have other states banned those sales? This is one of the ones we're paying close attention to because flavors um, really uh, attract new youth users. And that could be in vaping. It can also be um, flavored cigars. And then menthol cigarettes are specifically targeted, have been marketed towards um, African-American communities. And so what we're going to see when we're working on um, eliminating flavored tobacco products in our policies is um, really lessening those disparities, those health disparities that come from um, over-marketing flavors and types of tobacco products to certain groups of people. So that's one of the big concerns we have with flavored tobacco products. But um, Arkansas, along with many other states, has room to grow in this and um, it's something we're very interested in working on as the American Lung Association. Arkansas also receives an F for level of state tobacco taxes. I'm assuming this refers to the amount of money that it is um, tacked on to a pack of cigarettes or a tobacco product? That's correct. Um, as it stands right now, Arkansas has a tax rate per pack of 20 of $1.15. Um, and that, you know, could go up, of course. Um, the higher you see a tobacco tax going up, um, the less likely you have new users to start because it cost is prohibitive. Um, and also for people who... Um, are disproportionately affected by tobacco use, like people in um, rural areas or low-income communities. That is also going to be a deterrent to. It's going to be a good reason to quit smoking. Um, but I think the big, the big area is youth, youth use. 
I know you are specifically concerned with Arkansas, Missouri, but I want to ask you about one thing that's included in the federal grades, and that is for federal mass media campaigns to prevent and reduce tobacco use. That gets an A. So the campaign nationally to try to convince people about or, or try to warn people about the dangers of tobacco use, that gets an A. So that's that would say that, you know, over the last 20 years, that that campaign has certainly increased and is, is more um, abundant than it was. Yeah, and that's very good news. And I think it's a great, um, a strong example from the federal level to set and to show that that works. Um, I mean, the Tips from Former Smokers campaign, for example, by the CDC has been highly effective in helping um, people quit smoking. And so, you know, why not do what works when trying to help people quit? So, um, you know, we're, we're taking good steps in the right direction. And I do want to emphasize um, back to the state tobacco prevention control program funding the state is doing a great job. The Department of Health is doing a great job with the funding they have. We really want to focus on protecting that funding and recognizing how valuable that is and how far that money goes. Um, and uh, just to know that, you know, that's important. We need to protect it. You know, these grades can kind of look discouraging, but it's not saying that the work of the people who are taking, you know, really strong steps each day to try to help folks quit smoking. That's not a failure at all. But as we look at the big picture, what can we do more of? Um, and, you know, we just have to look at this in, in the big, the big picture is, you know, over 400,000 um, tobacco related deaths per year. And with lots of new youth users, um, we don't want to see those numbers go up. We want to see them go down. So we need to do everything we can to eliminate this problem, um, not just damage control. We need to make it a thing of the past. So we're, we're making steps and we're going to get there. Laura Turner is the Senior Manager of Advocacy for the American Lung Association in Arkansas, Missouri. She talked with us about today's release of the 20th Annual Tobacco Report Card from the American Lung Association. You can find out more at Lung. You count on KUAF Public Radio and NPR for the most factual, in-depth news coverage of the day's events. But we know that those events can sometimes be too much. Shows how much uncertainty there is on Wall Street right now. News fatigue is a real thing. But KUAF's weekend lineup can help take some of the edge off. Play along with the silliest quiz show on radio. Some people want a birthday smack. Or relax as you escape to a far-off destination. Hawaii has influenced the rest of the United States on today's travel. We all need a break from the news sometimes, and KUAF weekend is just the thing. For the weekend lineup on 91.3, just go to KUAF.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and all of the Kings River. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show was produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors included Matthew Moore, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and Charlie Allison. Additional material today provided by our friends at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our theme is Style of the First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional show creation performed today by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. KUAF's membership director is Sherry Ottaviano. Don't forget, you can subscribe to a podcast feed of our daily shows. Just go to your preferred podcast distributor. And if you'd like to hear the most recent edition of Ozarks at Large, just ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. The podcast, by the way, like all of our services, absolutely free. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. Please take care of yourself. We'll talk again very soon.